quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered, where tonight we address the United States of hate. It's been one week since 31 people were killed in mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. It's worth pointing out those two shootings followed another one week earlier in Gilroy, California, where three people, including a six-year-old and a 13-year-old, were killed by an angry guy with a gun. Amidst all this, many Americans are calling for more gun laws. Democrats have offered a wide array from universal background checks and raising the minimum age requirements to suing gun manufacturers and banning assault-style weapons. Some Republican lawmakers have expressed an openness, but how sincere and serious they are remains to be seen. Now, for years, as you might know, I've gone on television and made the case for the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. I've pointed out that criminals don't follow gun laws, and I've defended the NRA and its members, law-abiding gun owners like me who have Nothing to do with mass shootings or violent gun crimes. I've done that because I am a gun owner and a gun rights advocate, and I believed it was true. But I am no longer an NRA member. Being right no longer feels righteous because in the wake of more mass shootings, acts of senseless violence that send innocent people running for their lives, leaving children, orphaned, loved ones dead on the ground, We must do something about guns. We have a problem in this country, and that problem is hate. Tonight, I'm going to spend most of the hour talking about hate and what we can do about it. But one of the things we must do to begin to solve our hate problem is to put down our metaphorical weapons, our defenses, our special interests, and finally be honest about the role that guns play in this culture of hate in America. And the honest, simple answer is, it is too easy for too many sick people to get their hands on guns. People with the kind of hate in their hearts as the El Paso and Dayton shooters, the Sutherland Springs and Charleston church shooters, Las Vegas, San Bernardino shooters, I can go on and on. They're not going to be cured of their hate by taking away their guns. But we also don't need to just hand them a killing device and 100 rounds of ammo and say, Please don't do anything bad with these. A kid who shows videos of mass shootings on a first date, who is suspended from school for having a hit list and a rape list, should never have had access to a gun of any kind, period. Domestic abusers should never have access to a gun of any kind, period. People who make violent threats against individuals or groups of people should be taken dead seriously investigated thoroughly, and ultimately maybe never have access to a gun of any kind, period. Our gun laws should make it harder, if not impossible, for people who hate to carry out their violent fantasies. And right now, our gun laws make it too damn easy. Universal background checks, gun violence restraining orders, raising the age of gun purchases to 21, banning 100-round drums, 
fixing our NICS system, investing in mental health inside our schools. These things cannot wait. I am so sick and tired of participating in this predictable cycle of politics where a mass shooting happens, the left calls for new gun laws, some meaningful, some unproductive. The right yells slippery slope and hides behind the Constitution. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. And with the next mass shooting, we do it all over again. Look, I love the Constitution, but it's still a document. It's meant to protect human beings, real people, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. What happiness are we protecting if our kids are afraid to go to school? What liberty are we protecting if we don't feel safe at the mall or walking down the street? What lives are we protecting when we arm a 21-year-old white supremacist with 100 rounds of ammo only so he can go shoot up dozens of people at a Walmart, including a two-month-old child? I know I will be accused of letting my emotions get in the way of facts here. I've made that accusation before. But this is an emotional issue. How could it not be? In fact, it should be more emotional And to my friends in the Republican Party, at the NRA, on the side of gun rights, if you're not emotional about this, join me, won't you? Let's start with emotion. There's a lot we can accomplish if we start as humans, not NRA lobbyists or gun control lobbyists, not special interest groups or politicians, but as humans, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, friends, colleagues, because we have everything to lose if we don't. I'm joined now by Peggy Lehner, Republican state senator from Ohio, who is calling for action on gun control. Um, First, uh, I I, I just want to ask, you're in Dayton. I know the first funerals for victims began today. I want to know how the community is a week after this uh, horrific tragedy. Uh, The community is still in shock. Uh, you You don't begin to comprehend just how horrible this is until it lands on your doorstep. And... You know, as we stand here in the Oregon district, a part of the community I've visited many, many times um, and just feel the pain that's down here. Um, I, I talked to the six-year-old son of one of the victims today at his mother's funeral. And those sort of things just really hit home. And, and you know, your words were so powerful. And I, I totally agree with everything you just said. And um, so I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to, to join you here tonight. Well, our hearts are with you um, and with with the victims and their families, um, and I want to keep them, um, you know, front front and center in our conversations. Um, but naturally, the conversation after these shifts to politics, and you have said you're personally embarrassed that got common sense gun laws are only proposed by Democrats. So, what are you calling for now? Well, I'm getting behind the governor's. The governor came out on Tuesday, uh, Governor DeWine, with a 14-point uh, right. uh, proposal that's everything from background checks, red flag legislation, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with some of our laws around uh, what occur, what happens when, uh, when a criminal uses a gun. Um, I, I think that's a good list, and, uh, you know, it's certainly a great place to start. I don't have yeah. the highest of hopes. That we're going to be able to get it through. I, I have the same concern that you do. That you know we'll cry about it today. We'll we'll shake our heads. We'll say something has to be done. But two weeks from now, uh, the cameras move on to another community, and and we're left no different than we were. But maybe this time it'll be different in Ohio. Maybe. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, um, you know, your Republican 
Governor Mike DeWine has proposed gun control mm -hmm. legislation. Republican Congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger, called for some of the same things, um, as well as banning 100-round drums, raging, raising the age minimum. Republican Governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, is renewing calls for um, what he calls severe threat order protections against people who are believed to be a danger to themselves or others. So I am seeing movement among Republicans that I, you know, haven't always seen in the past. Is this the time for Republicans to break with the usual cycle of, of resistance and come to the table? You know, yeah. You know, I hate to say that it takes three mass shootings in one week to get people to change their mind, but maybe that's what it's going to take. Um, you know, I'm slightly more hopeful. Uh, I, I've been working to pick up co-sponsors on some of this legislation the governor's proposed. I'm not having a lot of luck so far, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be back in session here shortly and I'll have more opportunity to talk to folks and hopefully they'll, they'll come around. I'm, I'm just praying that happens. Well, as you know, an overwhelming majority of Americans support universal background checks. 84% of Republicans support them, too. A majority of gun owners and NRA members support them. I'm not suggesting they'll prevent every, every mass shooting, but shouldn't this just be a question of whether the president has the will to get that passed federally? Well, there's no question we're going to need the president to stick to his promises, and I hope he isn't going to backtrack on his position on background checks as he has in the past. Hopefully this time he really means it, because it is going to take um, that kind of support from Washington, I think, to move to move the party, to keep the NRA from uh, stepping in and, and dominating the conversation. So let's, you, let's um, hope he stays where he's at. Yeah. You, you said you hoped that the president would be moved when he came to Dayton in the shooting aftermath. As you know, he visited Dayton and El Paso and then, you know, bragged about crowd sizes and started fights with local leaders and the media. Was that, did that offend you? Um, you know, I, I wish that there had not been a political slant to the whole thing because, uh, you know, if, this, if we allow this to become old, overly politicized, we're not going to make the progress we need to make. We need all Americans to come together right now, Republicans, Democrats, independents. We need them to leave their politics at home and start looking for the sort of constructive, concrete solutions to this problem that is, going, that is actually going to make a difference. And if we're just pointing at each other and yelling and screaming about uh, party politics, that's not going to happen. Well, Ohio State Senator Peggy, Peggy Lehner, I hope people on both sides of the aisle, I hope the president, I hope everyone's um, listening to you. And we're thinking about your community. And I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you so much. Next in our conversation about hate in America, it's one thing to say the right things. It's quite another to do them. Yet Republicans, including the president, don't seem all that concerned about the urgency of now. And later, law enforcement officials say the politically connected financier and accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein took his own life this morning. So what happens to all those investigations and justice for his victims? I have a great relationship with the NRA. They supported me very early. And that's been a great decision they made. For decades, the NRA has been the Democrats' boogeyman, the insurmountable hurdle standing in the way of any and all gun control legislation. But the NRA of yore is not the strong man it once was. 
Last week, three members of the NRA Board of Directors resigned over, quote, shattered confidence in leadership. There are a number of lawsuits, including against the CEO, Wayne LaPierre, over his lavish spending. There are dual investigations by state AGs. There was a Russian spy scandal. There's public infighting between leaders and even an attempted coup. A steep 22% drop in membership dues uh, to a five-year low in 2018, not to mention money woes. Revenue at the NRA fell by $54 million in 2017. This is the backdrop for what Democratic lawmakers and presidential hopefuls promised to be a big fight for new gun laws. President Trump says he will support background checks, and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says red flag laws and background checks will be front and center when lawmakers return from recess in a month. The NRA, though, is warning Trump not to take any action. Writing in a public statement, the NRA opposes any legislation that unfairly infringes upon the rights of law-abiding citizens. So is it now or never? Joining me now to discuss our assistant editor at The Washington Post, David Swerdlick, and Republican strategist for Michael Singleton. David, I know we've been here before, but do you think this time it's different that there's too much public pressure and the NRA doesn't have you know, the leverage it once did. Never say never on gun legislation, but I do think it's going to be an uphill climb for people wanting to see something get through, mostly because of the Senate, mostly because of Majority Leader McConnell. Um, Something or or something big? So here's the thing. Two things. One, just timing-wise. Congress is in recess right now. I think Republicans are counting on people having moved on by the time they come back. McConnell's not going to bring the Senate back. The second thing is that Democrats are going to have their initial offer be a whole raft of things. Background checks. Right. uh, Banning assault-style weapons, um, waiting periods, mm-hmm. red flag laws, et cetera, et cetera. And if the Republican counteroffer is just maybe we'll do red flag laws, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. and in the background the NRA is saying President Trump, Senator McConnell, don't do anything, mm-hmm. I think you're going to have a non-starter. I really think you're going to have a hard time getting a bill mm-hmm. that you could even think about conferencing between the House and the Senate. Schmeichel, where Trump sits, though, I mean, he can really do anything. 90% approval within the Republican That's Party. Right. I, I mean, I don't think anyone in his base is going to go away if he says I'm for background checks. No, They'll I, say, now we are, too. No, I, don't, I think you're right. And in your opening, you talked about how not only a vast majority of registered Republicans support this, but also a vast majority of gun owners. Like myself, yeah. like you, I'm yeah. also a gun owner. Yeah. And I do think this makes a lot of sense. To your question, though, that you asked, mm. David, I do think the NRA is in a weaker position yeah. than I would argue we have seen it in a very, very long time. With many of the financial issues, a lot of mem- former members of the NRA have now joined Gun Owners of America, a different organization yeah. now. They don't feel that the NRA speaks directly to them. And so I think when you take away mm. uh, the, the issue of, of liberty, if you will, but talk more so to gun owners at a personal level. You guys have kids, you have grandkids, Mm -hmm. you have relatives. Do you want those individuals to be safe in a public space? I Mm -hmm. think the question would be yes. And by virtue of that, you can then in turn put pressure on Republicans in the Senate to say, guys, we're not asking for too much, but let's do some common sense things here. Here's the trap door in that, though, Shermichael, that I think we're dealing with here. Yes, polls show, as you said, Essie, Mm -hmm. that Americans want some gun control reform. Yeah. What, what, what it is, we're not exactly sure. But it's members of Congress who take money from the NRA. That, that speaks louder in a lot of cases. Yes, but than, let me just point out, do. there's yeah. less of it to go around. There's, there's less, less to go around, money now. But it's still there. Yeah. That the NRA, just as every lobbying group, knows that you don't have a lot of moderate districts now. People are firmly fixed, especially in the House, in either Republican or but Democrat. But I just wonder if, if and, Trump can give them cover, yeah. though. 
He can. If Trump can give but a Republican lawmaker this is, cover, he, this is why he can't give him cover. Trump is not a conservative. This is one issue no, where I don't he thinks with that, he but. thinks like a Democrat, right? That's why you had that meeting last year mm -hmm. where he was sitting around the conference table with uh, Democratic and sure. Republican con uh, congressional leaders saying, "Yeah, sure, background checks. Why are you so afraid of the NRA?" And then they reeled him right yeah, back. But, but in. Essie, you, you talked about the NRA not having a lot of money, like any organization. I mean, they, they have are, a lot of money, but they right, have but they not less as money much than as they did, like maybe several years ago, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, they are responsible to the individuals who have membership with their organization. Right. But I used to be a member of the NRA. I yeah. still get all of their emails. And let me tell you something. Every single day, I'm getting an email about yeah. donating something. It indicates to me that there are financial woes there. Mm -hmm. David, if you want to change this thing, if I were Democrats, I would speak directly to the Republicans mm -hmm. who poll that showcase stricter background checks. Therefore, maybe banning not drunks worried of 100. Sure, Michael, rounds, they're not worried therefore. about Democrats. They're worried about getting primary married from their right. No, 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 David, 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 but, but the strategy, the, the strategy would be, though, to speak directly to those voters to, in turn, put pressure on those Republicans. Well, let me if just ask one more question we before change, we have to go. Michael, you might be too young to remember 1994, but... <laughs> I was only three or four. Right, but a lot, of, a lot of Democrats in Congress remember 1994 viscerally. They lost 54 seats in the House, largely due to a 1994 assault weapons bill. Right. Um, do you think that's a factor, not for Republicans, for some Democrats. For some Democrats, you know, you have your Connor Lambs, uh, another moderate is not coming to mind. You have the gentleman from Staten Island on your show a few weeks Next ago, Rose. the congressman. Right. Uh, yes, maybe in some of those districts, there's just so many fewer of them. But I now. think it's right. all in how the question is posed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think makes the ultimate determination. Well, I think that was my point, too, that, like, can we talk about this as humans? Mm -hmm. It's so hard to do because we're all used to talking about it in political terms. And right. I think we just the would Democrats all have to stop. We're going to take all your weapons away. They have to stop that right like, who's saying that? not for that either some, all right some. david Schmeichel, you guys are sticking around that's how good you are coming up in our continued discussion on the united states of hate how are important conversations about hate racial tensions and mass shootings taking over the 2020 election and just a day after the release of disturbing court documents politically connected businessman jeffrey epstein is found dead by apparent suicide stay with us People say to me, did Donald Trump cause those, those folks to be killed? Well, no, of course, he didn't pull the trigger, but he's certainly been tweeting out the ammunition. If more guns on the streets made everybody safe, we'd be the safest country in the world. We're going to reduce gun deaths. We are going to make this a Congress, make this a government that is responsive to the will of the people. That's why we're here. Who in God's name needs a weapon that can handle 100 rounds? For God's sake. That was just four of the 16 2020 candidates speaking at the Gun Sense Forum hosted by gun control advocate groups in Iowa today. 21 Democrats in total are making stops at the politically critical Iowa State Fair. But this year, the usually upbeat and folksy event feels a little different. It comes just a week after two mass shootings and against the backdrop of the president's race baiting attacks on minority members of Congress. How does all of this change the calculus for 2020 or doesn't it? Back with me now, assistant editor for The Washington Post, CNN political commentator David Swordlick and Republican strategist for Michael Singleton. David, almost half of the 2020 Democratic candidates have come out to call the president a white nationalist or a white supremacist, including Beto O'Rourke, Elizabeth Warren, mm -hmm. Pete Buttigieg. Is that going too far? 
Uh, I don't know if it's going too far. I think if you really have that in your mind, that that is the way you want to frame it, as uh, Congressman O'Rourke has, as Senator uh, Warren has, then you should say it. I personally don't feel the need to attach that label that sounds, mm. in some ways, to a lot of people, I think, narrow or maybe even clinical. Uh, I would just say the president is a garden variety racist. Mm. And leave it at that. Um, you know, he's a race baiter. He delights in his race baiting and use it for political gain. Do we know what's in his heart? No, we don't know what it's. it's Mr. Michael, in, the in president himself has said, "Call me a nationalist." That's yeah, not he, a bad word. He, so he, why wouldn't we take him at his at his own word? I mean, look, see. I would sort of caution Democrats here because we know for a fact 2020 is going to ultimately come down to turnout. That's it. Turnout. Can you maximize your voters in those key swing states? And telling people the same thing who already agree with you, they've made this determination, I would argue, two years ago. Mm. What are you going to argue to those individuals who Mm. decided to stay home? I'm going to do A, B, C, and D to actually improve your lives, to give you a reason, if you will, Mm. to come out this time around versus staying home before. And I'm not really seeing a lot of attention played to those issues. Well, David, um, the the Trump campaign, according to Axios, they love this. Um, They see that as Mm -hmm. rallying his base and even alienating some moderates that Shermichael was talking about um, who think it's it's going too far. One Trump campaign official said they, Democrats, are Mm -hmm. trying to make the case that anyone who supports this president is a racist. They're talking about nearly half the country. I don't think that's totally genuine, but um, are they right about the political implications of this. I think they're definitely right to say that that the president feels comfortable playing on this ground. He doesn't feel comfortable talking, getting in the weeds of health care or mm. environment. He's comfortable in the weeds of the race debate because he knows where he stands in it. Whether or not it's 3D or 4D chess that's going to help Trump hold on to swing voters or white voters who might be on the fence about some of these issues, I'm not sure we're going to see. But here's the thing. If you're a Democrat, maybe you don't have to use the term white supremacist, but at some point, if you're not calling out the racist statements, at least, the racism, then what you're not serving your constituency well, and you're not are. being I honest. Mean, they are. They're yeah, they, that. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they are. But there are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, who support Donald Trump, who are white Americans, who are not racist people. Right. That is a fact. Yeah. And when you make these broad sweeping statements, you do isolate a lot of people. And I think Democrats need to be very, very clear on that distinction. Well, I haven't heard any say, I think Trump's a white supremacist and so are all his voters. Right. But that's how people, I would argue, I see a lot of people across America are yeah. interpreting it that way. Mm. And again, back to my original point, you need to give people a reason to vote for you. If I'm a Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren and I'm a Democratic voter and I'm looking at those candidates, I'm thinking to myself, I know Trump is a horrible person if I'm a Democrat. I get that. But what else are you going to do for those bread and butter issues to make my life better? And, and they're not talking about it. Well, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. They're not, David. Sure, the, 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 you're, you're a Republican strategist. Of so course, I'm, I'm of biased. Course, of course you don't like the Green New Deal. Of course you don't like Medicare for All. That makes sense. Sure. But they are talking about those issues, which some Democratic all voters do want. All I've heard over the past month now is how horrible Trump is if, and he's if, a if anything, I know this is a little off topic, Essie, but if anything, I think the Democrats' mistake is that they're not running they're more on Obama's about record. Obama has an Easy record mm-hmm. to run on for anybody, especially the moderates. Yeah, Unemployment but, but Obama, went down. Too, the stock market went up. Osama bin Laden is in the ocean. Yeah, That's an easy much, thing Obama to run on. Obama is too much of a centrist for today's Democrats. That was very clear. I don't think clear, he could get elected in today's the, Democratic primary. I don't primary. think so either. And that's very clear in the last he, Democratic debate. He's a generally, generationally talented retail politician, so I do think he yeah. could. Mm-hmm. But no, mm-hmm. his lane of centrism is represented more by someone like Congressman Delaney than 
say uh, Senator Warren. That may be but clear, but it was very clear that folks like Kamala Harris, uh, uh, Cory Booker, mm -hmm. uh, Castro, all attacked Obama's records on various things. But they Shemichael, made it clear I just that's wonder, and then we got to go, but I just wonder, right, for, sure. for as much as you were suggesting Republicans and maybe even some moderates are turned off by all the talk of Trump is racist, yeah. I wonder if you underestimate just how much people are turned off mm -hmm. by Trump attacking immigrants and oh, minority don't... members of Congress. Mm -hmm. Is that maybe more impactful than you or I might even know, no, be I, able to I, quantify I, in a poll? I certainly give credence to that idea, mm. um, Essie. But, but again, beyond constantly saying how horrible something is, yeah. how are you going to improve it? What are you going to do if elected to make it better? And I'm not hearing a lot of cogent arguments articulating that. Well, um, this will not be the last conversation we have about this, uh, unfortunately. Sure. We'll, we'll have to continue this another time. David Swerlich from Michael Singleton, thanks so much thanks, for Essie. joining thanks, me. Essie. So white supremacy is just a hoax? I wonder what a former white supremacist would say about that. I'll ask one more on the United States of Hate coming up. In the red file tonight, hate in America. Officials say it was a white supremacist that gunned down 22 people and injured more than two dozen others in El Paso, Texas, and explicitly because he says he hated Mexicans. It's hardly an isolated incident. Anecdotally, we can all remember recent violent attacks on a black church in Charleston, a car attack in Charlottesville, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. The rise in white supremacy is real. There are more racist hate groups in the United States than ever before. The FBI says it's already made as many domestic terrorism arrests in 2019 as it did in all of 2018. And that a majority are motivated by white supremacist violence. But to some, the growing threat of white supremacy is just a hoax. The whole thing is a lie. If you were to assemble a list a hierarchy of concerns, of problems this country faces. Where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. It's actually not a real problem in America. This is, and I'm being generous, disingenuous. Just because white supremacy isn't a leading cause of death or our gravest threat doesn't mean it isn't real. It's frighteningly real, and it's terrifying entire communities. We've seen a lot of fear in the community because of that and, and because they, it's real now. You know, it's not like uh, we can connect those dots and, and people know that they're in danger just because of the color of the skin. Of course, the leader of the country in which this is all happening has had multiple opportunities to definitively disavow and condemn the scourge of white supremacy and nationalism. Here's how he has responded first as a candidate. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Did, did he endorse me or what's going on? Because, you know, I know nothing about David Duke. I know nothing about white supremacists. Then as president came this remark after violent clashes between a neo-Nazi rally and counter-protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, where a woman was killed two years ago this weekend. Killed the person. Heather Heyer died. 
They showed, they showed up in Charlottesville Excuse me. to protest. Excuse me. They didn't put themselves down as And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And then on Wednesday, Trump said this on his way to visit with the communities of Dayton and El Paso. I am concerned about the rise of any group of hate. I don't like it. Any group of hate, I am, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's any other kind of supremacy. Let's be clear, you have to work real hard to avoid unequivocally denouncing David Duke, neo-Nazis, and white supremacy. It's so much easier to just say, of course I don't support them, and I don't want them supporting me. He did not. He has not. He will not. With me now to discuss our founder of the Free Radicals Project, a group that works to reform white supremacist Christian Picciolini and anti-racism writer and educator Tim Wise. Christian, I start with you. Is white supremacy a hoax? Sadly, I see white supremacy is not a hoax. Uh, neither is white supremacist violence. Um, we've had a string of years, uh, over a decade, where we've seen violent act after violent act, starting with a Sikh temple shooting, uh, you know, all the way until the most recent events that, that have even spurred copycat acts or trying to doubt, outdo each other. Uh, sadly, we're not living in a post-racial society. We are living in a nation that is actually full of racism and white supremacy. And you say that as someone who lived it, you were part of this movement, um, and you say, actually, the worst is yet to come. What do you mean? Yeah, I was involved for eight years in my youth, and the things that I'm hearing come out of the president's mouth and out of the administration in terms of policy are identical to things that I would have been very happy about when I was a part of that movement. Everything from an immigration ban to a Muslim ban to building a wall to, you know, the way we talk about other countries as us whole countries. Those are all things that I can pull out of the lyrics that I wrote 30 years ago uh, today. Uh, so to believe that people aren't acting on those things. Uh, I used to say those things in order for people to act on them. Mm. Those things are causing people to die, and there has to be responsibility for that. Tim, how does today stack up against past eras in this country when, uh, inarguably, racial tensions were, were even greater? Put today in context. Well, a couple things. I mean, number one, the denial of a large segment of white America that the problem is a problem is something that we've seen in every generation. You can actually go back to the pre-civil rights uh, years, 1962, 63, before the civil rights laws were even on the books, and two-thirds to three-quarters of white Americans then actually told Gallup pollsters that black people were treated fully equally in employment and housing, uh, you know, and, and education. So white denial about the problem uh, goes all the way back to enslavement. Most slave owners would have told you, oh, we treat our slaves well. There's not a problem. So white supremacy and the denial of its impact is as America is apple pie. I would also say the second thing that's similar, uh, and you know, Carol Anderson, who's a brilliant scholar down at Emory University in Atlanta, wrote a book a couple years ago called White Rage. And what she talks about is in every era where there has been progress made by people of color, uh, either real progress or even just strong symbolic progress, there has been this backlash, this white rage. It happened after the fall of enslavement and after Reconstruction, after black migration to the North in search of jobs, after the end of segregation, the beginning of affirmative action and now the end of the Obama era. So part of this, sadly, is the growing pains of becoming a pluralistic, multicultural democracy. Some of it is inevitable mm -hmm. as a result of moving in that direction. The question is, how do we respond to this moment? And that's where I feel the administration is failing. Well, and Christian, 
who do you think are the most vulnerable to extremism? And I'm going to use the president's favorite word here. How does this kind of extremism infest the mind of white Americans? I think we're all susceptible to this. I think Mm. every person on earth is susceptible to radicalization if the circumstances align correctly. Uh, I say that we hit what I call potholes in the road of our life's journey. And those things can be trauma, abuse, uh, poverty, neglect, even privilege that keeps us in a bubble. Mm. If those potholes stay unfilled, if there are voids, they can detour us to the fringes where there's somebody waiting with a narrative for us to blame somebody else for our pain. And we're dealing with a lot of pain right now in America. America has its own potholes. Well, as you know, Christian, um, it's not illegal to hate another race. It's not illegal to be racist. So how do we combat the ideology? What, what do we do? Oh, well, that's a complicated question, but I think certainly some of the things that we can do is acknowledge that we are failing young people, uh, that you know everything from early childhood uh, mental health care uh, to education to lack of opportunity uh, to not uh, having their passions fulfilled and not having adults not support them. Uh, I think we underestimate young people, and, and frankly, I think we should give them a little bit more voice today. And catch them, catch them early. Tim, I, I hear this argument a lot that... One reason Trump got elected was because a lot of white American voters were sick of being called racist because they were worried about their jobs or because they wanted strong borders. And some argue that there's a vilifying of white America that's also contributing to the racial tension and division. Is there some truth to that? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, the reality is if you're afraid of being called racist, don't go be racist. That's not exactly the way to thumb your nose at the people who are mocking you. If you really believe that, then the thing to do is to join in the fight for this thing called multicultural democracy. I'm sure that people don't like being called racist. I'm sure black folks don't like being called a pathological underclass, but they're called that by a lot of the same people who voted for Donald Trump. People who, for instance, didn't care a lot about the drug problem in black and brown communities and locking people in those places up, but now want sympathy because of the opioid crisis. Well, I'm ready Mm. to give them sympathy because you know what? That crisis is real. And we have pharmaceuticals that flooded a lot of those white communities with those drugs. But if Mm. you want sympathy, you have to give sympathy. It has to be a two-way street. And the irony is that those same white folks who ignored the pain in black and brown communities are now reaping the whirlwind of that denial. Mm. They would have been far better off to listen to what people of color were saying and join with them to create a new future mm. for the country and for everyone in it. Tim Wise, Christian Picciolini, thank you both for coming on to have a really important conversation. I appreciate it. By now, you know the headline, convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein took his own life this morning, but the story isn't over, not even close. Stay with me. Jeffrey Epstein is dead. The businessman and accused sex trafficker was found unresponsive in his jail cell and died at an area hospital. Authorities believe Epstein hanged himself. No foul play is suspected in his death, and the FBI is now investigating, presumably, how in the hell this happened to a high-risk, high-profile inmate who had just weeks ago reportedly attempted suicide. He had been jailed since early July when he pleaded not guilty to charges accusing him of sex trafficking dozens of girls. This comes less than 24 hours after court documents were unsealed that described in detail allegations against Epstein and several associates. Epstein's lawyer released a personal statement saying in part, I call for a full investigation into the circumstances surrounding Mr. Epstein's death. The public needs to know exactly what happened and why and how his custodians could have let it occur. No kidding. 
With me now, former New York City homicide prosecutor, CNN legal analyst, Paul Callen. Um, obviously, this is shocking news, Paul. Not just for the victims of his alleged crimes, who I'm sure we're hoping to see him go to trial, but also it's just very hard to imagine how this could have happened. What are your thoughts? Well, it's absolutely stunning, really, because first of all, this is a federal facility. We kind of have this picture of federal facilities as being very well run and very humane. And in fact, of course, MCC, the closest thing it can be compared to is a gulag or oh. Guantanamo Bay. It's really a dingy, horrible place. Yeah. But nonetheless, when you have a well-known person like Jeffrey Epstein, right. who has tried to commit suicide, you would think he would be under careful watch. And when he winds up dead, it looks very suspicious to me. Well, it just doesn't read right. The, t the timing, too, right? I mean, just yesterday... A document drops naming many other high-profile people connected to Epstein. But those people aren't out of the woods, right? I mean, they are still going to be in under an investigation spotlight, right? Absolutely. They're not out of the woods because even though the criminal case will now be dropped against him because he's dead, obviously, there will be civil cases that will go forward in which those names will come out. And there, there's also the possibility of criminal charges being brought against his co-conspirators. So his death will not stop that. And I think the fascinating thing to me, and that's why I was focused on the same thing that you were with hmm. that document that just yeah. came out a couple of days ago, that named some interesting people, Bill Richardson, former governor of New Mexico, uh, former uh, Maine senator was named, uh, George, Mike, George Mitchell. Um, and of course, uh, President Clinton and President Trump, both yeah. guests on the plane. And um, he knows a lot of people in a lot of high places, and all of a sudden he winds up dead in MCC. All right. It's Paul very Callen, suspicious. Stay right there, because there's more. Uh, I, I have more questions when okay. we come back. Okay, I'm back with Paul Cowan discussing the shocking news that accused child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is dead by suicide. You've been to MCC to visit clients before. Yes. Someone like Jeffrey Epstein, would he have had contact with other inmates? Would he have been under observation 24-7? What would he be sort of uh, living in? Well, usually someone like Epstein uh, would be in solitary confinement. And El Chapo was confined that way because of a great danger that he might be hurt or killed by a, a fellow inmate. Mm -hmm. and, and they're held in very, very tiny uh, cells. The lights are usually on all day in those cells, and they're kind of terrible conditions. But he would then be moved when he tried to commit suicide approximately two weeks ago, right. thought to have tried to commit suicide, to a different situation where he would be monitored very closely, where there would be an attempt to make sure that he couldn't get a hold of sheets or other things that could be used to help hang yourself. Right. And what's astonishing here is he manages to hang himself while under, well, he had just been released from the suicide watch, but he should have been under intense scrutiny. And uh, conspiracy theorists are going to say, you know something? He's a guy who could have made a case against a lot of higher-ups, and all of a sudden he winds up dead. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered here. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, Paul. Okay, thank One you. One quick programming note before I go. Our original series, The Movies, continues Sunday night with the 60s. The Movies, tomorrow night at 9 on CNN. Ana Cabrera has the latest headlines next on CNN Newsroom.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 